Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Ready for episode 100. It's the centennial. Woo! We're going to hear from Tirtha Bukahabadai, one of our most popular guest scholars. And we'll be talking about the archaeology of emotions and how that relates back to the imagery within rock art. Fabulous program. Well, hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and this is episode 100, the uh, centennial. How exciting. We've been doing this for about three years. And one of our most popular and uh, gifted scholars is on with us this evening, patching in from Mexico. His name is Tirtha Mukahabadai. He's a Fulbright scholar and uh, an excellent researcher. Tirtha, are you with us? I'm right here with you, Alan. Thank you very much for having me on this show. Well, it's a pleasure. So give us a soundbite as to uh, what the focus of our efforts going to be today. Uh, well, I'd like to talk more theoretically today and explore some of the cognitive perspectives regarding the uh, structure and appearance of rock art. And I would like to call this uh, session the archaeology of emotion. And I think this is something that's rather distinctive in terms of our efforts together. I did not realize before we spent considerable time together to write our book and do our articles that, um, that the images on stone are evocative. They have an agency or a sense of an emotional intensity. Do they not? Yes, that was precisely 
the foundation for the series of articles that we developed on rock art and especially of the rock art in this region, in this part of the world, as elsewhere. And I have been studying rock art elsewhere as well. And the most important aspect of rock art research seemed to me to lie in this phenomenon of rock art, the rock art figures, the configurations, the geometrical representationals, as they are called in the literature, that they all have uh, emotional impact on the viewer. And uh, the most interesting conclusion that we could already draw, or rather the inference that we could draw from this kind of methodological, epistemological posturing about uh, the rock art figures is that the rock arts are somehow indicative of the, of the human ability to depict emotional figures or emotional objects, and that this would stand contrary to the received theoretical opinions regarding rock art images in the traditional academic, cultural, anthropolo- anthropological milieus and scholarship. Sure. So I think, I think what you're talking about is sometimes when typically, traditionally, when archaeologists and even rock art scholars are looking at the imagery that exists within rock art, they call them static, static anthropomorphs, or they call them images that are, they don't have the vitality or the, the power or communica- communicative elements to them, but I think they're, they're somehow missing the uh, content, are they? Yes. Some scholars have called them the invisible elements of rock art. Okay. And uh, the archaeologists and even anthropologists and those studying visual culture, for example, have not gone as far as to suggest that these uh, images or even if we consider the the history of sculptures and those gravitian upper paleolithic sculptural figures mm-hmm. that there has that these that these representations do not have any intrinsic communicative or or semantic or value in other words the anthropologists of the last uh, 100 to 200 years including the great anthropologists of the German Anglican anthropological traditions, including Edward Taylor, Franz Boas, and you, you name the, uh, the Karl Lumholz, those pioneers in cultural anthropological studies have always tended to consider the images as static symbols to which humans have given some kind of, have attributed meaning in a consensual way, but that this meaning is part of a collective consensus, that it's, it's not, that, that the image does not intrinsically have any meaning or... Right, uh, right. And so what, so what the revolution is, or what the novel discovery is, is their intrinsic power, communicative ability, and emotions agency in, in some way or other, almost, that comes from the images. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, we are trying to restore some subjective value, some subjective validity to the to the creativity of the ancient 
shamans, the the ritualogists. Give us some examples of of exactly what you're talking about, so that we can sort of have a a three dimensional understanding of this of this uh, type of communication. Th- that's the way to move forward, really. And I would like to set up a kind of uh, chronological map of the early prehistoric depictive traditions. And we could well begin with the early Holocene rock art and uh, gradually try and consider the meanings inherent in some of the rock arts of the more later epochs in history. Sure. Uh, for, For example, some of the most elemental images that we discern on the surfaces of rocks, for example, in the great rock art traditions of the American, American Southwest and California, for example, or, or the rock art traditions of Central India or the rock art traditions of the, the Central Asia, the, the Great Central Asia. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the Great Basin, of course. Yes, the Great Basin in North America, of course. And, and, and everywhere, the, the most elemental signs are geometrical, they have geometrical orientations. They are either squares, quadrants, and uh, with crisscross, rickrack patterns, mm-hmm. zigzagging patterns, and some kind and some kind of ritual patterns. And we do not know the meaning of these rock arts. The people who made them are no longer there to communicate that meaning to us to pass on. Them. But they have they did pass on that meaning to us. And that meaning is, it's, it's not a meaning which we could perhaps represent verbally, but it's a meaning that we start to feel at the rock art. Recently, I'm beginning to understand, even to feel that there is a gap, a hiatus between the emotive power of those uh, representational geometrical shapes and the visible shape itself. In other words, that that there is an aura of psychological meaning to those those, uh, geometrical shapes in rock art. But uh, to return to that earlier point, that that chronological evolution of rock art figures, rock art images. So what what we see is that when we look intently at uh, a representation, we begin to see that this image is, it's a very different kind of pattern. And some of the effects, how does the rock art maker, the hypothetical rock art maker, the shaman or, or the priest or however we might call this person, this, this person, this man or woman who depicted that, that uh, pattern on the surface of the rock, what was he or she thinking at that point of time? And how was he or she trying to secure those emotional effects? Empirically, there is a set of indicators for these emotions. And this is where we could try to understand scientifically how the emotional effects are really secured in the more elemental geometrical patterns. And maybe in these representationals, there are, for example, glow effects. Glow effects are secured with outward shooting lines 
from a certain central figure or a central configuration. There may be frill effects or embellishments. And then there is, of course, that very strange, the, the recurrence of the Fibonacci circles. There are concentric circles. There are mat patterns. There are diamond shapes with parallel concentric diamond patterns. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting aspect of this that when we consider the metrics, the, the distance between one point and another point in, in that visual continuum, mm-hmm. we begin to identify perhaps a kind of a prescience, a preemptive understanding of how the proportions, the ratios would impact the viewer. And the prehistoric shaman already had an immersive understanding of the way in which these emotions could be evoked through a very conscientious and very informed knowledge of geometrical ratios. And this would take an enormous amount of research and recognition an enormous amount of literature for us in order to understand how these effects were were really secured. But there is no doubt that the geometrical patterns that we see on the surface of rocks in, in the rock arts, for example, in the patterned torsos of those anthropomorphs, those spirit entities or whatever, those human shapes, those humanoid expressions, they seem not just to be an accident. There is logic, there is thinking, there is historic, even evolutionary contemplation ingrained in the way the shamans depicted the rock. So there's a a structure and there's a, a method to their effort. Yes. And what are the, what are they trying to communicate or what is the emotion that the perceiver, the people that view these images are intended to process? This is an interesting interesting question and to understand this we have to again depend on our ability to respond to emotional or emotive signals. You know, emotions, the the very etymology of the word emotions suggests motion or movement. And even in Mm. various other Indo-European languages, for example, emotions are always associated with a sense of movement or a sense of, could could we call it shock effects, which would impact physically and uh, corporeally as much as internally our states of feelings, that is. So they move us. So if we fall back on this very traditional idea of what the, what the emotions are, even as we try to wade through the theoretical ideas of the theoretical definitions in, in the cognitive science of emotions, if you look at 
the uh, definitions of emotions. We would see that that everywhere from some some of these great scientific research on the emotions shows us that the emotions are somehow connected, that, that they are reflexes, that they express themselves in, in and through our body, that the emotions are visible on the face, for example, that there are certain basic emotions, but the basic emotions are connected to basic behavioral reflexes. Well, let's stop it there and, and we'll uh, pick it up on the next, next segment. And we'll delve a little bit further into the archaeology of emotions. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, all you folks out there in archaeology podcast land. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with uh, segment two for your rock art podcast. Tirtha, we were uh, just discussing the emotions the archaeology of emotions and how that may relate to the theme of and the substance of the particular elements of the religious and cosmological elements of an indigenous culture. How would that work? Uh, absolutely. That's where our discussions would lead us to towards. The, the emotions are of essence, because in archaeology, neither in archaeology nor in anthropology, has the emotions been considered to be an important uh, tool for the understanding of these rock art patterns. And it, in fact, archaeologists, as we just said, have not you, you know, ventured out to explain what these uh, figures mean. But yes, the emotions, the, the, the basic uh, point here is that the rock art geometrical representationals, and then we, as we would be inclined to follow this argument and apply it to the anthropomorphic figures, that the rock art always essentially, indispensably, has emotional, emotive impact on the viewer. What this means is that, and then the question that follows is, what kind of emotional impact? The emotional impact is that of essentially one associated with wonder. It's awe-inspiring when you look at those uh, those images. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a sublime feeling. Yes, it's mysterious. It also has a transcendental element to it, as, as you and I have said in the past. Yes. You, you get this uh, tether between the terrestrial and the celestial absolutely the cosmology the, the 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 largeness 
the you are connected to the to the entire universe to the stars it creates an integral or integrated aesthetic sensory experience you know that that the the landscape and the rocks and the images they grow in together but uh, i would suggest and i would i i, I mean i humbly suggest here that in every experience of rock art figures there is somehow even if it is unrecognized a feeling a grain of fear a grain of a primal fear experience in what cogn- what cognitive science now calls the the flight or fight response yeah the fight and flight so yes. I think what you're saying, and I and I, I do understand, I, I think appreciate this. As as we as we view these figures, there's a suddenness, a surprise, a a sort of guttural feeling of of sort of revelation or or trying to uh, understand and and somehow conceptualize what we're seeing, and sometimes it's it's monstrous and mysterious. Sometimes it's it's just uh, overwhelming. A- am I at all correct? These are absolutely the terms that have been used in the psychology of uh, aesthetics and emotions and okay. artistic emotions. You know, the, and, and uh, psychology is still trying to, to grope with this question of ritual or artistic or religious emotions. There is no clear-cut definition. But all these emotions that you just mentioned are, are associated with that state of responses, uh, those states of responses, that set of responses, uh, like awe and fear and mystery and wonder. Now, if we jump on to the analyze the the anthropomorphs, the human stick figures on rock art surfaces, mm-hmm. there's a sense of immediate, Im- immediacy. The, the figures seem to jump out at us. That they have, that they seem to be floating. They have what you know, Maringer, whom we both of us ha- uh, have been fascinated with Maringer's uh, position on the numinous experience of rock art right, figures. Right, right. The numinous. They're yes. f- they have a floating experience. It seems as though they are embellished upon the rocks, almost as an envelope or a curtain or a particular. How would you put this? Some sort of a ethereal appearing, appearing in it's, which uh, they it's have revealing, been. and then yes, that is the the the, the numinous figures, the numen. Yes, it's it's like most of the rock art human figures, they don't stand on their feet as such. I mean, visibly, no. they they seem to have avian feet. Uh, uh, the, the 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 example of avian feet, uh, the count of avian feet. Features bird bird like feet features in in the coarser rock art in the and the, and they're the, they're uh, floating the rock art of the they're southwest not stable they're they're in some sort of a no. they're smack dab looking at you almost peering right. uh, face forward and 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 you know almost uh, causing you to be riveted and directing your attention at them. Yes, absolutely true. That's that's the way they they behave, and this and is very the- common. I mean, I, I've seen it in the great mural rock art of Baja. I've seen it in Coso and 
we of course see this uh, throughout the world, don't we? We see this throughout the world. We see a whole layer of Fibonacci circles and concentric circles all across the continents and the prehistory of migrations. And another very far-fetched theory of mine, which which it's it's a, a, a really like a, a baby theory for me, but I believe that the notion of the numinous anthropomorph, which is fundamental to the birth of religions, to the understanding of how religions evolved in human culture, the the sense of death, fear, mystery, uh, a, a spiritual revelation associated with these images, the, the human stick figures. This somehow explains how human cultures have developed such complex narratives of religions in, in the more uh, written, literate phases of the cultural evolution. But speaking of these numinous uh, figures, these figures with raised arms jumping at us or even blessing, these figures do not evoke sexual emotions. No, they don't. Hardly, hardly. I mean, there are references to to, to uh, copulation, to birthing, sure. but uh, somehow these uh, anthropomorphs appear to us to be childlike characters. And, uh, and I, I, I think the Fibonacci, there is a way of looking at the Fibonacci just as there is a way of the Fibonacci looking at us. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is, the Fibonacci creates an effect of, you know, dizziness. It creates an effect of uh, trance, if you would call it, uh, a, a very mild and embedded response, trance response. But the Fibonacci is a forerunner of the numinous anthropomorph because the Fibonacci, if you look at the Fibonacci as a circular image which uh, stems or comes out of the center towards like a cone, if you consider Mm -hmm. it as a moving cone from a center Mm -hmm. outwards, expanding and extending outwards in uh, in, in a spiral way, Mm -hmm. it evokes motion, emotion, emotive responses or reflexes. and, And it's just as if, it uh, drops down uh, towards us. I, I think back to that image that we have in our book that I've used often in a number of my publications, and it has, I think, what you're talking about, a Fibonacci spiral, and it depicts the post-mortem animal ceremony where they're revering the uh, skull of the animal, and it shows how the spirit, I believe the spirit of the animal would go down to the underworld and then in turn return to the hunter and be transmogrified. That's how I've always seen it. I don't know if that's how you th- see that image or not. but Of uh, course. That's it, how it we have seen it. Yeah. 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 And isn't that how we have discussed, the, not the Fibonacci per se, but right. you know, uh, the, the anthropomorph generally? Now, there's... There's a, a sort of a, a traditional way they're showing the anthropomorphs 
and yet the animals are shown differently. Instead of a, a face-forward, full-frontal, static, numinous figure, often they're shown in a side view, and sometimes with great uh, emotion and vitality and movement. Am I correct? I, I agree with I agree with you on that. And animals and animals would comprise the other great chapter of uh, the archaeology of emotions. How do these uh, animal animals, different animals, you know, from deer to sheep to to to, to bigger uh, game animals, or smaller game animals, and all sorts of animals which were hunted animals of sustenance, human sustenance, these animals are, they always seem to be under a kind of uh, power, an external, uh, extra morale, uh, terror mm-hmm. or power, and that these animals are dying, they're giving up, that they are that they are victims. I wouldn't call them victims, but that they are objects of sacrifice. Yes. And the power that that belongs really to the hunter, which is the power of death. Mm-hmm. This feeling of death, again, the feeling of the, that primal fear, mm-hmm. the, that feeling of being or standing on, on a frontier of life and, and non-existence or death or whatever, that, that fear, that power is transmitted to the, the posture of the animal in a way which is which to me is unbelievable i mean the simplicity mm-hmm. and the raw power with which such depictions appear in the oldest strata of human art this is uh, unbelievable and even those great horses you know those great yes traditions of painting in the uh, in the in the Western tradition or in mm-hmm. the animals in other cultural expressions. I mean, they, they tend to lack that, that unmediated simplicity of the rock art uh, shamans and their, their, the manner in which they, they created the effects of the animal as being an object of sacrifice and, and nourishment and vitality and and abundance yes and i i I think i think we're on on to something very central because you're talking about the cosmology the religious metaphor the heart and soul of what the native peoples believe and if you look closely at rock art again and again and you you did hit the nail on the head the nexus of death and life is portrayed in a transparent authentic way that you see before your very eyes. How's that? This is the most uh, revetting mm, the, the, uh, the gaze which has endowed rock art. And uh, we will continue to be fascinated by its power throughout the ages. And mm, another, uh, a very, very briefly, I would, I would just like to mention here that what makes me wonder is that there are no much, not much evidences of practice, of rock art practice. I mean, I mean, uh, could you eliminate me on that uh, front, Alan? We see examples of rock art. 
we are fascinated by rock art. But where did these shamans practice their art? Did they just uh, make these images out of uh, no prior training, artistic <laughs> training? You know, there's, there's, I, I know of nothing that I've read in my 50 years of study that mentions anything about how these shamans or ritual adepts learned to do their rock art. I have nothing. I've I mean, the not, a, not a word has, have I heard of any sort of practice or yes. training or anything along those lines, which is interesting, actually. Let's, let's call it a break here and, and catch on the flip-flop, gang, and we'll uh, wind it up for segment three. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back, gang. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with your Rock Art Podcast. Tirtha Mukahabadai from Mexico talking about the archaeology of emotion and the nature of indigenous religions. So Tirtha, how does this translate into the religious canopy? How do we deconstruct or get something regarding the cosmology and the structure of the religious metaphors from our rock art? Mm, yes. Uh, the, the questions uh, that we just raised in our discussions on the archaeology of emotions, and uh, I do not think really that, the, that other scholars have, have dealt exclusively with, uh, with the theme of archaeology of emotions in the way we have done in our book on the Uto-Aztecan religions, the, the, the iconicity of emotions, the iconicity of uh, of the religions of the Uto-Aztecan peoples of the entire Great Basin and, and the American and the greatest American Southwest and, and uh, Mesoamerica and uh, the, the great religions which evolved over time, the religion of the of the snake, as we have called it in in the book, and uh, I think there are more unanswered questions here rather than questions to which we know definite, to which we have definitive answers. I think one of the themes, an overarching theme, and something that's critically important, I think, is yes. the nature of an indexical animal and the animal that communicates emotions. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you're The animal master it, narrative that you, you have. Yes. You yes. have been uh, writing about the animal master theme. For a long time, Alan. Well, how do you explain the 
narrative? I mean, it, how, how do you think is a narrative being constructed out there? So the, the, this animal master narrative is something that's, that's uh, yes. available and characteristic of cultures throughout the world. And there's something within the cognitive software of the human mind that appears to consistently identify a super mundane being that is going to be responsible for the transmogrification of animals. There is some sort of an emotional tether uh, for killing beasts and some need to allay or somehow sympathize or deal with the emotional turmoil one is under when one is killing animals. That that is, is absolutely necessary to survive. And this this may have been a seed for some of this cosmological nexus. Am I at all correct? Uh, this this is this is uh, precisely what the religions are dealing with. Uh, you know, a provider, a like, spiritual it, provider. Yes, and, and it's an intuition of someone of of a provider who transcends human abilities, supernatural the notion of a supernatural provider, the notion of uh, an omnipotent God, a provider God, a sustainer, a giver, the confidence that the presence of such a provider entity evokes in the participant, in uh, the member of that collective, the faith that it generates and and a, a kind a state of feelings or emotions which which are conducive to to better performance to mental health mental. <laughs> to try to de- to try to deal with the yes. peculiarities of life the yes. the uncertainties and the tremendous uh, challenges that one faces just to conduct their affairs to this day and in the past there's a tremendous connection I think, between uh, looking at those visual prayers emblazoned on the rocks and thinking about the same issues that we face today just has to do with longevity, sustainability, life, death. They're all there, aren't they? Yes, this is uh, a religion. We don't know if we have uh, transitioned beyond uh, religions, but... Uh, the doctrinal elements of religions, but religion may be a system integrated in our very cognitive nature itself and does not lie beyond it in some ethereal speculative space of our discourse. There's something within our physiology, our neural structure, that, that uh, consistently uh, yearns for some sort of a supramundane being to reassure us, to give us confidence, to give us the ability to face adversity and also the, the disconnects that we have in terms of attempting to live, attempting to procreate and, and have a family and to uh, abide on the planet. Yes, disease, natural disasters, all those great fears, the primal fears 
that uh, nature evokes in us to this very day. Yes. Yes, yeah, to this, this very this, day. The, the I mean the just the natural engineering of it all it's, is is amazing. It's just, it's it's just, it's just overwhelms. Yeah. You know, I've I've thought about this a little bit, and I don't know if this is comes out of the blue, but after 9-11, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, one of the things that occurred was this tremendous angst that people had and uh, the, the need to identify symbolically as a nation. And so they ran out of flags and flags were uh, one means of symbolically identifying a signature or hallmark of the unity and identity of the United States. Now, isn't that somewhat analogous? Of course, of course. I mean, this is exactly how religions were preparing us for the last two millennia, for the last several centuries. Now, but what's mm-hmm. interesting is the simple, elemental, primeval, primordial nature of rock art enables us to appreciate how this works. Humans are also competitive, combative. Humans are willing to destroy each other. And how can we sustain ourselves in a nature which is so unforgiving? Right, right. What are the resources? Environment, absolutely. And and this is not just between. This is not just interspecies. No. But this is intraspecies, and and when we look at the more detailed history of the classic Aztecs, for example, Mm -hmm. if we take it as a case study, we could take any any period of history from any region of the world, for that matter. But but in the Aztecs, uh, in the Aztec belief of the supernatural, their preparations for war, their this this vision that death and life are intertwined in a continuum, and that these right. deities are somehow enabling us, empowering us to contemplate on this paradox, and it, the the natural emotional propensity or tendency is has to be acknowledged at the root of any kind of theorizing about human societies and and, and beliefs i guess don't you think ellen and it looks like uh, in some ways uh, this particular perspective has not been uh, really uh emphasized or it has not been part and parcel of our discussion of rock art, has it? No, there is not really. Not really. There is still so much to to explore in the rock arts. Rock art has to be studied in an interdisciplinary way. It's not just a, a field for archaeologists no. who are refining on the physical existence of rock art clusters and exploring the relations of rock art to time layers. But also 
the very narratives of rock art, like like the animal master uh, narrative, for example. Mm-hmm. How far can we probe into the possibility of disengaging and looking at narratives from the visual clues in rock art? How does that translate into the images? How do we read the images? How do we interpret right. those images? Right. The, the, the animals, uh, uh, the availability of horses in America, mm-hmm. the, the, the dates of the extinction of artiodactyls, the, the availability of sheep, the scarcity, transitions in climate, climate changes, and right. the changes in the biome. You know, it's interesting, Tirtha, that I thought of, because we're talking about emotions and rock art. When I've looked at the uh, very robust record of the Yahuera figure for the Kauaisu, Southern Paiutes, it's always about someone, a native person, troubled emotionally, who somehow searches out the animal master <laughs> and visits that animal master and comes away with a song or a some sort of a, a medicine that transforms their life and allows them to continue in the face of adversity. Isn't that interesting? That, that is how humans have lived for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Yeah. Well, we, are, we cannot even scratch the surface of that. So uh, we're, that. we're creatures of the sacred narrative, the oral tradition. Yes. We're, we're creatures also who want to perceive and see and taste and feel the supramundane, the supernatural, the transcendence and connection to a higher power. And this is how it's been done, even yes. though we can compare the contemporary way we do this compared to hundreds and thousands of years ago. There are similarities in that particular vein, are there not? These similarities, Alan, as, as you mentioned them, and this would be a nice way of uh, looking at the continuity, especially from a visual perspective. The rock arts have taught us to appreciate, or rather it has unknowingly perhaps inspired humans to create the great arts of the Byzantine churches. Yes, the, the those those compelling eyes mm-hmm. of the Virgin Mother, yes, the same naturalistic technique, this primordial technique of negotiating with death and a sustainer, a, a, a possible hypothetical sustainer, is evident in the fear of it, uh, in the on the eyes of the masks of all the great traditions, cultural yes. traditions. And I think this, the, the, if we jump, if we try to draw a, a line linking these discreetly available expressions on the human timeline, the Kwakutl mask, the, the great power of those animal human masks, those eyes of the Kwakutl the fishermen masks, the, you know, the bird eyes. Yes, yeah. It has an emotional tenor. It's something that takes us through fear, through connection, through 
transformation through the uh, ethereal plane. And I think with that, we'll close and uh, perhaps we'll connect again in a couple of weeks, Tirtha, and continue this discussion. Thank you, uh, all you listeners out there in archaeology podcast land. See you soon. See you in the flip-flop. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Become.